You are listening to ReachMD XM, the channel for medical professionals. Childhood diseases. Can umbilical cord blood be a possible cure? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Renee Matthews, your host, and with me today is Dr. Joanne Kurtzberg. Dr. Kurtzberg is an internationally renowned expert in umbilical cord blood transplantation. She is chief of the Division of Pediatric Blood and Marrow Transplantation at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. Also, she is the co-chair of the National Marrow Donor Program Cord Blood Committee. She also serves as a co-director of the Stem Cell Laboratory and director of the Carolinas Cord Blood Bank at Duke. Dr. Kurtzberg and I are discussing her work with childhood diseases and umbilical cord blood. Dr. Kurtzberg, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much. What are some of the diseases you see in your practice that are afflicting young children? Well, we see two basic categories of diseases. The first is children with various types of cancers that are not responsive to standard treatments. And in pediatrics, there's great success using standard treatments in the majority of children who are diagnosed with cancer. But there's a small portion of children who will not respond to the standard therapy and who need something more aggressive to save their life, and transplant is sometimes the solution for those patients. And these include children with leukemias of various types, myelodysplasia, lymphomas, and sometimes a disease called neuroblastoma. The other category in general that's treated is a variety of types of genetic disorders, and this includes um, children with bubble boy syndrome or failed development of the immune system, children who are born with uh, inability to make blood or some part of their blood, like white cells or platelets, which are the blood clotting elements and which have diseases that can be corrected by someone else's cells through a transplant, children who have problems making red blood cells, and that would include children with sickle cell anemia or thalassemia, where, again, a transplant gives them a new source of red cells that are healthy. And finally, children with a category of diseases called metabolic diseases or inborn errors of metabolism. And these are, in particular, diseases that affect the brain and sometimes other organs and generally result from a gene defect that results in a missing enzyme that's necessary for development of of a variety of organs. And the transplant in those cases provides new cells that make the enzyme that the child's missing. Some examples of that are Hurler syndrome, which is in a category called mucopolysaccharidosis, or the Lorenzo's oil disease, which is a category called the leukodystrophies or lysosomal storage disorders. And these diseases you just named, are these solely found in children? No, they usually start in childhood, sometimes in infancy. Many of them have adult forms as well. Um, generally, the adult forms are milder and sometimes more slow to develop, and they may not cause as severe symptoms, but really it's pretty much disease-specific. Are the children born with these diseases, or some of them are not? For the most part, these are genetic diseases, so the children have them, but they may not express themselves till later in life. The cord blood transplant, would you call it a cure or a treatment? I think you have to call it a treatment because you really don't change the basic genetic makeup of the person. So even though cord blood may take away all the symptoms and prevent all the damage that the disease would otherwise cause, the patient still carries the genes in their own cells that are responsible for the disease. And the cord blood transplants, do they have to have more than one or is it just one-time thing and then the stem cells grow and everything's fine? It's generally a one-time thing. But it's a complicated one-time thing because the patient has to be prepared for the transplant with high doses of chemotherapy and or radiation 
so that in the case of cancer, the cancer is eliminated from their body, and in the case of genetic diseases, their immune system is suppressed so that their own body doesn't reject the new cell. And the chemotherapy and or radiation has a lot of side effects, is risky, and takes a great toll. The youngest patients you've dealt with? We've transplanted babies who are, you know, in the newborn period. In some of these genetic diseases, when we know because of a family history or because of newborn screening that the baby is affected either prenatally or in the first few days of life, we can start chemotherapy on a baby like that by 9, 10 days of age. And then the transplant is done by 18 to 20 days of age. Do you think that there'll ever be a way that they know that the baby has this genetic disease inside the mother's womb and they do the transplant before the baby was even born? There's a lot of people working on that. There have been some transplants attempted in second and third trimester of pregnancy, and they have been unsuccessful for a variety of reasons. There are people talking about doing transplants in the first trimester, which probably is the time they will work the best because that's a time when the baby doesn't have an immune system yet and can't reject cells. You certainly wouldn't give a fetus chemotherapy, so you have to be able to do this by just injecting the cells and having them take before the baby can reject them. And so there are some studies planned in first trimester, but none have really been done to date that I'm aware of. Now, have you done any research on the children you've treated with cord blood? It's fair to say that any child going through a transplant is monitored. Their results are reported to various transplant registries that look at transplant outcomes. And then depending on what disease might be treated, there are specific things that will be done to see how the transplant helps the particular disease. So in our case, we've studied effects of transplant in children with Hurler syndrome, with Crabbe disease, with adrenal leukodystrophy, with metachromatic leukodystrophy, and with Tay-Sachs disease, with sickle cell disease, and with various types of immune deficiency. Other investigators have looked at the effects on Fanconi anemia, which is an inherited blood disorder where you don't make blood properly and you can't repair your DNA properly and it's fatal in childhood. There have been people looking at rare but fatal genetic diseases that cord blood can treat and correct. Cord blood's been studied in national trials. The biggest one in the United States was one called COBALT, where 26 centers looked at the effects of cord blood um, transplantation in children with leukemia, in adults with with cancer, um, in children with immune deficiency, and in babies with a rare type of aggressive leukemia called infant leukemia. So we've participated in some of those studies, and they're all published in various journals. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Renee Matthews, and I'm speaking with Dr. Joanne Kurtzberg, and we are discussing childhood diseases and umbilical cord blood. You mentioned a vast number of diseases there that you have researched with the children. Is there something maybe you could tell us? Because there's a lot of those diseases you mentioned are not very common. So most pediatricians are not going to think of that disease. Is there some of them that you could tell us maybe some signs, symptoms that might lead them to put that in their differentials? Unfortunately, they're all different. So, for example, in the leukodystrophies, particularly Crabbe or MLD, which affects very young infants, moms frequently notice that their babies are irritable, they don't feed well, they're told by their pediatricians that the baby has colic and not to worry about it, but as that baby continues to get a little bit older, everybody realizes, oh, this isn't just colic, this is something more serious. So I think one thing is if the baby 
is very irritable, having feeding problems, it's prudent to think beyond common things and to wonder if that baby could have um, one of these rare but very devastating leukodystrophies. Um, Other signs would be the baby's tone is too high, the baby arches. In Crabbe disease, babies actually close their fists with their thumb inside their fists. And while all newborns do that to some degree, healthy newborns will also take their thumb out of their fist, whereas Crabbe babies don't do that. If you look back at their young baby pictures, you can see it in all of them, but nobody tends to notice it until the baby has other symptoms. In some of these other leukodystrophies, like adrenal leukodystrophy, which is the Lorenzo's oil disease, the first sign is usually, this is a X-linked disease, so it occurs in boys, and typically their first symptom is hyperactivity. And of course, in our country, every every little boy is hyperactive, but this is true um, hyperactivity. So many people believe that, you know, any five, six, seven-year-old boys presenting with that should at least have an MRI scan to rule out a more severe problem. For diseases like the mucopolysaccharidoses, like Hurler syndrome, which is the most common of those diseases, babies tend to um, have big heads and something called corneal clouding, which is you can actually see with your eyes, but it's clouding of the colored part of the eye. And that develops quite early in life. So if the pediatrician is astute and notices that, the baby can be diagnosed very early and benefit the most from transplant. All of these babies ultimately have some form of developmental delay, so they don't reach normal milestones at the ages they're supposed to. And that's another clue that something might be going on. Just in general, to switch gears, do you notice a difference between treating the children versus the adults? In general, in transplantation, and this is not restricted to cord blood, but children tolerate things better than adults. And you know, I always say to my patients, you know, remember when you were little and you had a cut and it healed in a couple of days and now you're older and you get a cut and it takes longer to heal? Well, the, the same thing is true in young children. They, they tolerate chemotherapy better. They recover from the different things that have to be done around the transplant more quickly. The very youngest children get higher doses of cells, so their cells grow back more quickly. Their immune system recovers more quickly and they're healthier more quickly. Also, young children don't get as much graft-versus-host disease, no matter what kind of transplant they have as adults. And the general kind of rule of thumb is that for every decade of life, your survival goes down when you're talking about having a transplant. And really, the best statistics are in children under 2, then children under 5, then children under 12. And then once you get to be about 18, you're over the hill. <laughs> and, and although transplant can be life-saving, it's a harder process. It takes longer to recover, and the survival rates are lower. I know you do cord blood transplants, but also I know with bone marrow, was there a comparison with the children with the bone marrow transplants versus the children with cord blood transplants? Well, there's never been a head-to-head randomized prospective study, meaning looking forward. And I don't know that that can ever be done because not everyone has a bone marrow donor. So you couldn't fairly balance kids if you wanted to randomize them. But there have been what are called retrospective or registry studies where you look back at results of transplants and try to match the groups and make comparisons. And um, there was a recent study published, Mary Eapen is the first author from the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research, and they looked at a large number of children with leukemia and compared those getting unrelated bone marrow with unrelated cord blood. And it showed that the overall, if you had a full match, the unrelated cord blood did the best. If you had one out of six places mismatching in cord blood, that did as well as all the places matching in bone marrow. And that if you had a couple of places mismatching in cord blood, 
that did as well as one place mismatching in bone marrow. So overall, cord blood was a little bit better than bone marrow. And again, the main point that was shown was that you can use cord blood without a complete match, which means many more people find donors and get as good results as using a fully matched bone marrow. Lastly, where can our listeners receive more information about these childhood diseases and cord blood transplantation? The National Marrow Donor Program has a website. Their address is marrow.org, and they have a lot of information on there about cord blood donors, cord blood transplantation, and cord blood banking. There's a lot published in the medical literature, but you'd have to go through medical journals to find that. And I think at this point, you know, talking to your physician and the specialists in transplantation and hematology, oncology, and genetics will be the best places to go. I want to thank Dr. Joanne Kurtzberg, who has been our guest, and we've been discussing childhood diseases and umbilical cord blood. I am Dr. Renee Matthews. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.